0: Take your copy of God's Word, turning to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4. We come to a familiar illustration, familiar parable to most in the gospel record, and specifically here in Mark chapter 4. I think you know this parable, you could probably tell it without even reading it, but let me read these few verses to put them in our minds. Mark chapter 4, verse 30. Mark writes, and he, that is Jesus, and Jesus said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. The beginnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the northern area of Israel around the Sea of Galilee or a lake called Galilee is the most incredible and unexpected story in all of mankind. Had those people really understood who was teaching them, Had those people genuinely understood who was performing the miracles and by what power and by what authority he was exercising his deity through his humanity, they would have been amazed. You know these phrases. Dynamite comes in small packages, right? Don't read a book by its cover. Great oaks come from little acorns. Those kind of pithy little sayings, colloquialisms that we have in our day, is really kind of the heart of what what Jesus is saying in this parable this morning. Those who lived during Jesus' lifetime were continually puzzled. They were dismayed and they doubted so many things about Jesus, about his teaching, about his message. I mean, this was the think about the rumor mill that was happening around this this man. He's traveling from town to town. He's performing miracles. He's casting out demons. He's teaching as no one else has taught before. He's actually explaining the Old Testament application of the word of God and the law of God that they had never considered. He was gracious and compassionate, as stern, also as stern and telling as anyone they had ever encountered. Could he really be the guy The whispers at dinner. Jesus, that that Nazarene, that guy from Nazareth. Do you think? I don't know. Do you think he's he's him? I don't know. The the Messiah doesn't come out of Nazareth, does he? And then over and over, you, you know that they were saying, if this is the Messiah, if this is the Christ, if this is the Savior, and he's up here with a, a few people in a fishing village? Why is he not down at Jerusalem, the seat of Judaism, starting his kingdom there? And these questions, by the way, were not just hypothetical. They weren't just theoretical. They're not just musings of your friend who's, who studied this passage this week. They came not only from Jesus' enemies and those who were curious, they came from those closest to him. Jesus' own cousin A man with whom he had no doubt grown up, visiting, taking vacations with, going to see John, Elizabeth's son. We know him as John the Baptist. John came, if anyone knew, it would have been John. And as we'll see in um, just a few chapters, when the recounting of his death happens, Matthew records that John, at the end of his life, he's about to be beheaded, sends word to Jesus and says, are you the expected one? That's an interesting way of saying that. He didn't say, are you the Messiah? Are you God in the flesh? Are you the the Savior? Are you the Lord? He said, are you the expected one? We've had this expectation for the king to come and begin the kingdom. Are, Are you the expected one? And then I love this. Or shall we look for someone else? He knew that Jesus would have the integrity to tell him the truth, whether he was the in fact, the Christ or not. That's actually strangely encouraging to me that John the Baptist, in the very end of his life, who if anyone knew the identity of Jesus, John did, says, now, I just want to make sure. When Nathaniel was invited by Philip to come and see Jesus, remember the scene? This is so precious. John chapter one, verse 43. The next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee. He found Philip. And he said to him, follow me, Philip. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida and uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. That's profound. We found him. We know who the Messiah is. Then he says this, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. We know Jesus primarily as the son of Mary. Philip introduces Jesus to Nathaniel and says, "Here's Jesus from Nazareth. We know his dad." And then Nathaniel punches right back and he says, "What? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth?" And then Philip says... Come and see. I love that. Come, come and test it. But that tells you that these early disciples, John the Baptist, were scratching their head just saying, Well, we had expectations about the king and his kingdom. And this is not exactly what we thought it would look like. A man roaming around nomadically in the north of Galilee, preaching from a boat and in obscurity. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, questions began to mount about his identity, about his authenticity. Is he really the promised Messiah? Is he from the right place? Sometimes he's said to be from Bethlehem, sometimes from Nazareth, sometimes from Galilee. All of that was, all three of those, by the way, fulfilled specific prophecies. Is his message messianic enough? They were expecting him to come and say, I'm the man, let's get an army, Rome is done, let's start the kingdom. And then they, the more they got to know him, and they they got to see these men that he was cohorting with and traveling around with, they began to say, So these are the this is your team? These are the men you want to begin a kingdom with? These questions are important, and they were so important that Mark answers them all. Remember, Mark is doing two primary things in his gospel. Presenting who Jesus is and preparing the disciples and you and me for the unexpected parts of being a follower of Jesus. One of the most critical parts of that is what we're going to be addressing this morning now just a little background. Um, I, we have to go back to the very beginning. This is really important related to what Jesus is teaching this morning. It's the, the background of, of the audience to whom Jesus to whom Mark is writing rather about Jesus. Mark is unique from Matthew and Luke. Those are the synoptic gospels, right? There's, there's really two sets of, of gospel records, Matthew uh, and Luke, and um, uh, Mark. Uh, that are synoptic. They basically tell a chronological uh, explanation of Jesus' life. John is different, writing some three decades later. He's looking at those gospel records and giving us the theology overlay of that. So when we talk about the synoptics, it's those three, not John, but Matthew, Luke, and Mark. Mark's record of Jesus is different in that it clearly targets, listen, this is important, related to our parable this morning, it clearly targets Romans, Gentiles. Matthew and Luke are saturated with Old Testament references, where Mark is much thinner on the Old Testament references. For example, he completely omits the genealogies of Mary and Joseph, which high, are highlighted in Matthew and Luke and begin their Gospels. Tracking Jesus' lineage back through to David and to, through Abraham. Uh, through David to Abraham was not so important to Mark for his audience. He often translates, by the way, Aramaic. That was the common language that would have been spoken in the Palestinian area. He he commonly um, translates Aramaic terms for the audience who would need these translations if they were Romans. They wouldn't have known the language. Chapter 3, verse 17, 541, 711, on and on. He He uses these translations for them. He says, this is what this means. In other places, he uses Latin expressions instead of Greek expressions. Latin was the language of Rome and Greek of Palestine and the official language. He also used the Roman system of time in 648 and 1335. We'll get there. There was a Jewish way of telling time and a Roman way. And when he references time, he uses the Roman calendar, the Roman clock, And when he came to Jewish customs, he took great time to go into detail where Matthew and Luke did not. We'll see this in chapter 7 and in chapter 14. I think it's also very interesting that Mark makes note that it was Simon the Cyrene in chapter 15, verse 21, who helped Jesus. And also he identifies him as the father of Rufus, who according to Romans chapter 16 verse 13 was a prominent member of the church of Rome. It's no accident. And you say why why the background? Well, <clears throat> that's important for our study today. Anyone think about this? Put yourself in a Roman toga for just a second. You're a Roman. Anyone under the rule and reign of the Caesars in Rome, the power of Rome, it was then the ruler of the world, Rome was. Might need a little help understanding and having explanation for someone who said he was the king starting a kingdom. If you're a Roman and you've got Caesar and there's this man who's preaching around the north of Galilee who's saying he's the king and this is my kingdom. John the Baptist said the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is where? At hand. It's here. You might say now I'm doing some political calculus. Caesar, the Roman forum, the glories of the seven hills of Rome, all the spectacular architecture that is Rome. And this guy running around in the north of a lake in the province of Galilee says he's the king and he's starting a kingdom I need some footnotes I need some explanation remember in chapter 1 verse 14 John the Baptist said specifically the kingdom of heaven is at hand in other words the king is here and the kingdom is beginning so through Mark's pen or we should probably say Mark's quill Jesus provides assurance that though the initial proclamation of the gospel and the kingdom of God seems very small and insignificant, the believers should not be discouraged. They should find confidence that the full majesty of God's kingdom is going to come someday, somewhere. So let's break this down and look together and discover two certain and counterintuitive sources of confidence or you could say for confidence in the king and his kingdom Two certain he wants to give us confidence certain and counterintuitive sources of confidence in the king and his kingdom if we were Romans if we were reading Mark's gospel we would need to know Hang on, give me some proof. Caesar's still on the throne. And the guy that I'm hearing about at this point has been dead for a long time, resurrected as well. And I don't see that anything's happening in Rome other than Caesar's continuing his rule. Too certain, counterintuitive. They shouldn't make sense on the surface. Sources of confidence in the king and his kingdom. Number one, the future of the kingdom's realm. The future of the kingdom's realm. Let's, let's look at the now and the then, the already and the not yet. Verse 30, and Jesus said, I, I love this. How shall we, pick, we'll stop right there first of all. And Jesus said, remember when he's talking to his disciples all throughout this chapter, it says, Jesus said to them, that's when he's in the, remember, here's the scene. He's in a boat, in a cove, back sitting in a a little boat where he could project his voice bouncing off the water into a cove that would have had potentially a thousand plus people. Perfect acoustics. So when it says when Jesus, when you're going through this chapter and it, and it said, Mark records, and he said, that's when he's looking at Jesus speaking to the crowd. When it says he said to them, as we've looked at in the last few weeks, he was privately calling his disciples together. We see that in verses 10 to 12. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? Jesus is now addressing the crowd gathered that was so large he has to get into a boat to be heard and to not be touched. Now, this whole chapter, as you know, has been focusing on seed, sowing seed. Uh, he tells three parables about the seed specifically being sown and planted and growing. This one is the only one where he announces to the crowd, this is a parable, which is another way of saying, you're not gonna understand this without effort. Look how he says this. It's really interesting in the original language. He provokes their thinking with a two-part question. How shall we picture... Homoyosomen, interesting Greek word, Homoi, homogeneous. You know that word. It means the same. Literally, how can I say the same thing about the kingdom in other words? How how can I give you a picture? How can I compare it? Then secondly, he says, by what parable shall... We present it. Now, you and I hear parable, and we think of the parables, parables of Jesus, these rich truths, these uh, kind of hiding in these um, analogies, and that's true, but when the people heard the term parable, they often thought of the idea of a riddle. One of the things that my family loved to do you know, when it was four against one with me on vacation, my sons loved to tell riddles. You know these, these crazy riddles that you tell and you try to figure out what it is? I, you know this one so it's, I didn't get it. You know, there's a man lying in the desert and he has on a backpack and there's nothing around and he goes on and gives all his details and how did he die? I said, I don't know. But you gotta figure it out. There's not enough detail here. I don't know. Keep asking questions and you'll find out. I don't care. He's not a real man. And we would go on and on and you could see you know, Luke would be telling it, Mark would get it, and then John would understand it, and Kim would get it. Dad, Dad, come on, you can do it. And I just didn't, I wasn't good at all. And you know, he's laying with their the backpack is an unopened parachute. What? <laughs> the idea of a riddle in our day is what they thought of when they heard the term parable. So when Jesus says, what parable shall we present it? He's basically saying, I'm going to tell you something that you should figure out. Apply your skills of analysis here. Ask questions and you'll find out what it means, which some, verses 10 to 12, actually did. This one is explicitly a parable. Verse 31. Here's the parable. Jesus said, well, the kingdom of God. Now, remember, last week we said the kingdom of God. And I've I've stolen this from uh, my friend, Dr. Tom Schreiner, who has done much good work in this. So is his son. That the kingdom of God is basically two things. It's a people and a place. A people and a place. It's citizens of a kingdom, and it's a place where the where the king will dwell. And right now, the sowing of the seeds is us identifying and calling citizens of the kingdom. The place is someday somewhere in the future where he will literally reign and literally rule, and the world will come and give him the praise he deserves in his full resurrected bodily form with the Lord Jesus reigning from Jerusalem. That's the place. We can experience the people part of the kingdom. He's reserved the place for the future. He says, the the kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest Under its shade. Now, stop right there. (laughs) We are immediately confronted with what liberal scholars tell us is proof that Jesus is not God. Do you see it? Do you see it? Here's what they say God cannot lie. True? True? True. God cannot lie. But Jesus didn't tell the truth. That's what they say. Because there are smaller seeds than mustard seeds in the world. And so they say, see, there's the proof. Did Jesus tell a lie? (laughs) No, the mustard seed is simply the smallest in the knowledge of the people he was talking to. How small? I put a picture up there. It looks like grains of sand. And the plant it produces can grow some 15 to 18 feet high. It was confirmed by the fact this was a colloquial saying, as small as a mustard seed was a, a common phrase in his time. Now a handful of mustard seeds looks like you're literally holding some black sand. That's it. They're tiny. Barely visible to the human eye. Think grains of sand. Now, in this parable, there's no emphasis on the growth of the seed. That was last parable. Here, it's the contrast of how small the seed is in the beginning and how big the plant is at the end. Small becomes big. Insignificant becomes significant. Unseen becomes unavoidable. So, in their mind, and this slide will help you see that, the people were were thinking, okay, I know what a mustard seed looks like, which was used for spices, it was uh, 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 used in pastes and sauces. And so, you would plant mustard seeds in your garden so that you would have that for flavor. And let's just say one neighborhood only needed one mustard seed plant. Can you see why? It would literally take over and dominate your garden without attention. That's why he says, look back at what he says again. When it grows up, becomes larger than all the, not the plants, the garden plants. It forms large branches. You can easily see that. And they're so big that the birds of the air can come and nest in its shade. Small cannot be interpreted as to how it's going to end up at the end. That's the point of the parable. Now remember, if you're a Roman, you're sitting still in your toga and your sandals and you're thinking... I thought Caesar was king. I thought he was the ruler and uh, this Jesus, how how, how, how do I work this out that he's the king? Well, Jesus is telling himself, don't judge the book by the cover. Don't judge the the oak by the acorn. Now, just a little footnote. um, Some of your Bibles may have the last part of that that, uh, text capitalized, which points to a quotation of Old Testament text. Uh, many times in the Old Testament, branches that would grow up and represent the, the covenant of God under which even Gentiles would find shade, where birds would find shade, was very prevalent. Ezekiel seventeen twenty three: on the high mountain of Israel I will plant that it may bring forth uh, boughs and bear fruit and become stately a stately cedar and the birds of every kind will nest under it. He is every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. This was a common understanding that the the blessings of the covenant of God through Israel would eventually bless the whole world. Psalm 104, verse 12, Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. Gentiles grafted into the covenant of God. I love how William Lane, great commentator, excellent commentary that he's written on the Gospel of Mark He says it this way, I could not improve on it, so I'm just quoting him, just quoting him, okay? He says this, quote, This parable is concerned with the enigmatic present manifestation of the kingdom as embodied in Jesus' person, who Jesus was. Its appearance may be characterized by weakness and apparent insignificance, but remember the mustard seed. The day will come when the kingdom of God will surpass in glory the mightiest kingdoms on the earth. for it is the consequence of God's sovereign plan. The mustard seed is the world is the Word of God proclaimed by Christ. this word possesses the power which one day will make all things new. when the glory of that manifestation breaks forth before men they will be as startled as the man who considers the tiny mustard seed and the mighty shrub, end quote. If you wanna have a great time, if you have little kids, find someone with a, a farm or come by my house this time of year. I have a giant oak tree that loves to do damage to my yard for the next four months. Pick up a little acorn And tell this little four or five-year-old, see this little acorn? See this tiny little thing? Hold it in your hand. See that? This tree came from that. And the wonder that they get in their eyes should be the wonder that you and I have when we say, the mustard seed, the mustard plant, this man on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and the king of the world should come into focus the grace of Jesus the kindness of Jesus to say to equip you and me to say I I know I know it looks like we're losing I know the fastest growing religion in the world is Islam he knows that and he's saying remember the mustard seed don't be discouraged have confidence that's the future of the king's realm it will happen one day number two a second certain and counterintuitive source of confidence in the king and his kingdom, the reception of the king's gospel. The reception of the king's gospel. This should give us confidence. Verse 33, this, this summarizes chapter four and these parables. With many such parables like the mustard seed, he was speaking the word, we've said that's the gospel, which ultimately we be canonized in the Bible, the word of God. But this literally means the message of God, the king's message. He was speaking the word, the king's message, the gospel to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. What's going on here? Well, verses 33 and 34 are Mark's concluding words about these parables that Jesus taught from the boat to the crowd at the lake. But there was private instruction, as you see at the end of verse 34. Everything he was teaching privately to his own disciples. Look back up at verse 10 for a moment. As soon as he was alone, his followers along with the 12, so it's not just the 12 men, but it's those who were believing his message, began asking him questions about the parables. Remember the riddle? You tell this riddle, and then someone's supposed to keep asking you questions until you figure it out. Jesus told this spiritual riddle and the disciples said, wait a minute, I have questions. And so he tells them the answer and you'll know he actually, we see an explanation here that he gives of the parable of the sower and the seed. He gives this explanation that happened with all the parables. They came to him privately, those who really wanted to know and said, okay, we heard there's a seed, there's plant. Can you talk to us? They had ears to hear and a desire to know. And as they moved toward the Savior, he gave them explanation. Mark is careful to say that these were not the only parables that Jesus told. Look how he phrases it. With many such parables. He told a lot more than are recorded here. These are just the ones that he's using to encourage us in his gospel. By the way, this is the 10th time in Mark 4. The 10th time that we hear the accent put on the necessity of having ears to hear or of hearing. That's the theme that stitches all of this together. Parables are intended to see who really wants to know the truth and will explore enough to find the meaning. And as we've been noting, the parables will either enlighten someone's understanding or obscure the gospel and God's word to the ear. It all depends on whether, having, whether you have ears to hear, which really means do you have the inclination and the prerogative to continue to search as to what they mean, which is what these followers were doing. Listen to how James Edwards describes this. Hearing determines whether one is an insider or an outsider. It is the all-important first step that leads to fellowship with Jesus, where fuller understanding becomes possible. For when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything in verse 10 to 12. Then he says this. This is critical. Only in association with Jesus can one learn to understand the language of of God, that's really well written. Only in close association with Jesus can one understand the language of God, and it's not just parables. Remember First Corinthians, look, look over just for a moment. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 14. "A natural man does not accept the things of God." the Spirit of God rather, for they are foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Stop right there. Appraises means investigates. You, You check the value of. God opens and illumines the mind and the heart and the eyes of those who are investigating with a sincere heart and no one will investigate unless he calls them. I can't unscramble that egg. What do we do with this then? Pretty simple, actually, pretty straightforward. Tiny sand, sand grain, uh, size of sand seed, becomes a large plant. Nothing can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ and its advance. To organize and gather the people of God and to prepare the place where He will rule and reign one day. I think this is a great illustration of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Don't worry. Don't interpret the theology by what you see on the headlines. Jesus continues to prepare his disciples. He knows they will struggle with confidence. He knows they will doubt whether he was really the king. He knows they will wonder if the message is really the king's message. When? When he's murdered. How do we know that? He was murdered, and all the disciples ran 100 miles north to get away from everything. When persecution comes, Paul and Peter both tell us that's a test to see if we will maintain confidence that that mustard seed which seems unnoticeable will become a great plant. When defectors apostatize, when faith wanes, when doubts come, when trials tackle us from behind and from before, I think this little parable tells us we can trust, we can trust him. We don't have to be dismayed, even if it looks like We're losing, even if it looks like the kingdom is hopeless, even if it looks like there's no way this world could ever be salvaged. Doesn't that sound like every night on the news? As we've noted before, it's important to always ask the right questions of our texts in Mark. The most important thing Bible study and preaching does is to say, what does the text mean by what it says? Presentation and preparation, right? Here's who Jesus is. Be prepared. Don't be freaked out. Don't panic if you don't see the fullness of the kingdom even in your lifetime. So the two parables, the one about growth in our last study and the one about its inevitability in this study, both warn us to be very careful not to under, underestimate the power of proclaiming, casting seeds for the kingdom of God. Even if it seems unimpressive, ineffective, we're planting seeds for the king. R.T. France says, what has begun in the Galilean ministry of Jesus will by the power of God one day prove to be of ultimate significance. If for the time being its power is hidden, it is not for that reason that any, any less certain and growth one day will be Spectacular. <clears throat> I have. Let me just say this, because I, I don't want to pick a an unnecessary feud or fight. I, I struggle sometimes with my all millennial friends, and I have many of them, and they are dear brothers and they are dear sisters. But I struggle with how this doesn't show that there is a a coming literal kingdom of God. I, I struggle that if. If we're in the kingdom now, why is Islam the fastest growing religion in the world? Why doesn't this look like the Old Testament prophecies? Why are lambs and lions not lying down and not eating each other? Or actually one would eat the other. Why is that not happening? Because he said, This is the time when we're gathering the citizens and the people. One day will be the time when Jesus comes in his second return and establishes the place. How bad will it get? How bad will it get? How much doubt could be mustered? Luke 18:8 8 says this. This is really, really shocking. Jesus says, "I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quick." He's speaking of the judgment of God. However, and then he says this: "When the Son of Man returns, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth?" Did you hear that? Toward the end, right before, you know, the old saying, "the, the darkest right before the, the, the sun rises. At the very end, when he returns, he says, hypothetically, hyperbolically, will, will Jesus even find anyone who believes it's going to look that bad? Don't be surprised. When you cannot see the future seed, mustard plant, seed becoming the mustard plant. And even if the world mocks you for it, Peter knew this. Peter heard this, this parable. Peter understood it. He said this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, this is what they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? I thought you said Jesus was returning. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of the water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day, like a thousand years, a thousand years, like a day. And here it is. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Why would he say that? Because the world will be mocking us and saying, I thought you said Jesus was the king. He's establishing his kingdom. Where is that going to happen? Now, people have forgotten enough about Jesus. They don't even ask that question much anymore. But think about this time when you have this early Christian uh, community saying, the king has come, his kingdom is coming. And they say, really? I don't think so. And then Peter says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. It's been 2,000 years. It's not slow. That's like day before yesterday to the Lord. As some count slowness, slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He is inviting kingdom citizens, the people of the kingdom. You can be confident in King Jesus. You can be confident in his kingdom. Though you don't see its full manifestation now, we can see the partial in in his reign, in the hearts and in the lives of men who've come to faith and understanding the gospel. We may not be in the place of, of the kingdom of God, but anyone who knows Christ has become a citizen and longs for that land and longs for that day. Let me just encourage you. Let me just beg you. Let me ask you to stop in your tracks and think. If King Jesus is really the king, his kingdom is really coming. Judgment awaits me for my sin. Reward and heaven await me for my faith in him. And what kind of fool would say no to that? Who would say no to that? Why would you say no to that? You say I don't have any evidence. Well, No one has evidence when they're holding mustard seeds in their hand that it's gonna be 18 feet tall either. He will bring us one day to the place and now he's called us to be proclaimers, seed casters, gospel evangelists to tell the gospel, plant the seed, bring in the citizens to the kingdom. We can be confident, We should be faithful, we can't be discouraged, and we should always be expectant. I was a young man, pretty discouraged, a year or so after I was saved, he was in high school. Had a Sunday school teacher who discipled me. I didn't even know what discipleship was then. He spent time with me and we studied the Bible. That was, he never used the word discipleship, but that's what it was. And he gave me a challenge. I'll never forget this. He says, um, John says that if you read the book of Revelation, you'll be blessed, right? Opening chapter. He says, I want to dare you. Now, you don't dare a 10th grader to do anything that you don't expect them to do. He says, I want to dare you to take time this Saturday and read the whole book of Revelation in one sitting. And he said, I I mean, you probably can't do it. I know you're, you're kind of distracted. Well, that's like, pouring gas on a fire. I will do it. And I did it. We met, that was, I think, a Saturday on on Tuesday mornings when we met. We met. He said, what did you think of Revelation? I said, I didn't get a blessing. I got so discouraged. That's awful. It's like judgment after judgment after judgment. He says, well, you did read the beginning and the end. I said, yeah, but have you read the middle? He said, Rick, it's going to look to most of the Christians in most of the history of the world. Listen, he said, it's going to look like we lose. But in the end, he wins. The mustard seed tells us it's the king and his kingdom can be trusted in whom we can have confidence.